0: many of you have probably learned by experience that rumors and murmurings can get started in all kinds of ways and about all kinds of things. Sometimes these rumors and murmurings get started because we don't have all the information. Something happens, something out in the world or something here in our community, and we don't have all the information, but we act like we do, and so we start talking about, oh, it's probably because of this, and this is probably what happened, and this is how long it's going to last, and nobody actually knows, and that's the reason why there's so many different opinions uh, circulating and, and spreading, and it's not healthy, right? It's not good. A lot of times there are bad consequences that come from that, but sometimes rumors get started because we misunderstand the information that we do have. It's not that we don't have the information. We do have it, but we don't understand it. So, for example, uh, somebody might hear a a preacher say, you don't have to go to church every Sunday to be saved. Right? Because we're not saved by works; We're saved by grace. And then you walk out going, the preacher said I don't have to go to church. It doesn't even matter. That's not what he said. Right? We misunderstand sometimes The information we do have. And I bring all that up because John seems to be addressing both kinds of problems here at the end of the Gospel of John. He seems to be addressing uh, some possible rumors or murmurings about Peter. And this is just sort of... um, an educated guess on my part. We don't know that there were any particular murmurings or rumors about Peter, but I suspect that they were, and I think John tells us this particular story about Peter to resolve those. I'll show you what I mean in just a moment. And then he addresses a misunderstanding about something Jesus said about John. They knew what Jesus said, but they took it the wrong way, led them to a wrong conclusion, which could have led to some significant problems. And so John wants to nip that in the bud and clarify what Jesus actually meant so that that misunderstanding goes away. And then finally, he's going to tell us just briefly, he's going to sum up for us what he's been doing in this gospel that he's written for us. So let me read for us from John 21. This is the last part of the gospel of John. John 21, beginning in verse 15. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. But Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So, John tells us a story about Jesus that none of, I mean, about Peter, that none of the other Gospels tell us. And I want you to try to use your imagination here for just a moment and think with me about this. All of the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us that Jesus, or excuse me, that Peter denied Jesus three times. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he was crucified, three times Peter denied Jesus. If you did not know this story that John tells us about Jesus speaking to Peter and saying, you know, do you love me, tend my sheep, and and restore what we call the restoration of Peter. If you did not know this story, would you have questions about Peter still being one of the lead apostles in the book of Acts? If If you had no idea if Jesus ever addressed this, if this was ever resolved... Would you get to like Acts two, where on the day of Pentecost, where all the people are gathered around and they're trying to figure out what's going on, why these disciples are speaking all these different languages, and Peter stands up and boldly preaches about Jesus, about his death and resurrection and ascension and how we can be saved? Would you be thinking, uh, is Peter the right guy for that job? Now, I'm not saying you know, would you think he should be disqualified as an apostle or, anything, but would you have questions? Would you have reservations? Would you wonder, like, is Peter fit for that job? I mean, he had a pretty spectacular fall. I, I, think, we, I think people probably had some questions about Peter. Right, if everybody knows, like, the worst thing you've ever done, but they don't know anything about how it was resolved, don't you think they're going to kind of wonder about you a little bit? I, I think people were probably wondering about Peter. And so I suspect, and again, this is just educated guess on my part, I suspect that John includes this story, that none of the other Gospels did, includes this story so that people won't have to wonder, so that they won't have those questions, so that they will know how Jesus resolved Peter's failure. It's really clear what Jesus is doing In this story, in this moment with Peter, right? After that night of fishing, they came to shore and Jesus served them breakfast. And it says, after breakfast, Jesus speaks to Peter, starting in verse 15, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And everybody who knows anything about Peter knows he loves Jesus. They know he didn't deny Jesus because he doesn't love Jesus. He was, he was out front, he was bold, he was demonstrative right, in his love for Jesus. And so he says, yes Lord, you know that I love you. And there have been, and some of you have probably heard this before, there have been um, some teachers and preachers who have made a big deal out of the words that Jesus uses for love here. Right, So they'll say, the first time Jesus says, do you love me, he uses the word agape. Right? That's, even if you don't know Greek, you've probably heard that, that word before. That's that special God-like kind of love. right? And so they'll say, the first time... Jesus asks Peter, do you agape love me? Do you have this great godly love for me? And then the second time, he switches to a lower form of love, phileo love, which is more like a friendship kind of love. And that's the love he uses the next two times. And so they'll kind of emphasize, you know, like, well, it's not really, you know, Peter doesn't really love Jesus maybe with that full kind of love that he's supposed to or something along those lines. But... Without getting into the details, that doesn't really hold water. If you look at the way Jesus uses those words in other places, there's not really that big of a difference between those different words for love. It's not a big deal. If I say, hey, do you want to have pancakes for breakfast? And you say yes, and then I say, well, let's have hotcakes. You're not like, come on, changing it on me, you know? It's a little bit more different than that, these words, but not, not a lot, right? So it's, it's not, a, not a huge difference. What is, on the surface, you don't have to know Greek or anything else to understand, what is really clear that Jesus is doing is he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And it's not the word he uses for love that's the most significant, it's the number of times he asks the question. Peter doesn't say, oh, why did you change from agape to phileo? My feelings are hurt, right? No, it says in the middle of uh, was verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. Peter knows what he's doing. By asking him three times, do you love me? Jesus is putting his finger on the most painful moment in Peter's life. He's reminding Peter, he's letting Peter know, I know what happened, Peter. I know what you did. And just like, you know, a doctor with a wound, we're going to have to address it and it's going to hurt in order for me to heal it. We're going to have to talk about it. We can't just let it sit under the surface and fester. We need to deal with this. And so that's why Peter, or why Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? He's giving Peter the opportunity to publicly affirm his love and devotion for Jesus just like he publicly denied his connection to Jesus. That's what's going on. And not only is Jesus giving him the opportunity to confess his love for Jesus publicly, to uh, to mend right, what was broken in his relationship with Jesus, but also he summons Peter to ministry. He restores him to his position as a... Preacher, as as one who is going to testify and bear witness about Jesus as an apostle. So not only does he ask him three times, "Do you love me?" which of course Peter responds all three times, "Yes, I do." But then all three times he also says to Peter something like, "Feed my sheep" or "Tend my lands." In other words. You go care for my flock. You go care for my people. You feed them. What do you you feed them with? You feed them with the word. You feed them with the truth. You feed them uh, with the good news of what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished, what you can receive from him if you turn from your sin and trust in him. Feed them with the word. Feed them with the truth. He's calling Peter, summoning Peter to go out and, preach and bear witness about Jesus, but also to tend the sheep, to care for them. Right, this, is, this is what the word pastor really means. So often, um, once we start using a word for something specific, we forget where it comes from. But the word pastor really means to shepherd. Right, A pastor is someone who shepherds someone or something. Right? So uh, he's saying, go, go tend to them, go shepherd them, go pastor them, go care for them. Right? So it's not just that you feed them the word, it's not just preaching, but it's also uh, ministering to their needs, caring for them, you know, leading them along. It's, it's imitating Christ in his role as the good shepherd. And On Wednesday night we were talking about Psalm 23. Right, Everybody knows Psalm 23 where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. And he restores my soul. And all those things. Peter, or Jesus is saying to Peter. That's what you go do. You go be an under shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. As Peter calls him in 1 Peter 5. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And under him are the apostles. And the pastors. And the teachers. And all those. And they're given the same job. Right? Go as under shepherds. Care for Christ's sheep. So again, I think John tells us this story so that we don't have any questions about Peter's role. Jesus made very clear that Peter had been restored and that he was charging Peter to continue to care for his sheep. Now I asked you if you would have any reservations about Peter if you didn't know this story. But maybe you have reservations about yourself. Maybe you are wondering, in light of your own sins and failures, whether you can even be a Christian, or whether you can minister to anyone. Maybe you're thinking, if people knew what I'd done, they wouldn't want me to be around. They wouldn't want me to be a part of their fellowship, their church. Something like that. Now there are sins that can disqualify you, for example, from holding the office of pastor or for doing, from doing certain kinds of ministry. But there is no sin that can disqualify you from being a Christian other than just outright rejecting Jesus. Right? Any sin that you have repented of, in other words, and any sin, any sin that you have turned from, can and will be forgiven. You say, "Well, what about the? Isn't there like an unforgivable sin somewhere in the Bible?" The unforgivable sin is looking at the work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and saying that's demonic, and I reject it. Right. So, yeah, if you commit that sin, you're not going to be forgiven. But that, you don't want to be, right? So if you if you have repented, if you have turned to Jesus, there is no sin. That Jesus is kind of holding you at an arm's length and saying, you can't, be, you can't be one of mine because of what you've done. That's why the Bible says in Romans 8, 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, there may be consequences still for some of your sins that you have to deal with in your life. Right? That can still be true but there is no condemnation. There is no Jesus pointing his finger at you and saying, you go sit over there. You don't minister to anybody. You don't try to contribute to the body of Christ. You just be glad we let you in the door because you are, you got a black mark, right? You're, you're blacklisted. You, you're second class. You don't get to participate. That's not how Jesus treats any of his sheep. Right, so whatever that thing is, maybe in the back of your mind that you're thinking I don't know, can I can I minister to anybody after what I've done? Can I I even be a part of a church body in a healthy way after how I've acted or what I've said or whatever? Remember Peter. Peter stood outside while Jesus was experiencing one of his darkest moments and said, I don't even know him. I want nothing to do with him. And then here's Jesus saying, Peter, I know you love me. And I still want you to tend my sheep. I still want you to feed my flock. Jesus does not condemn anybody who comes to him with a broken, repentant heart. Remember how he treated the woman who was caught in adultery, who was brought before him, and all those guys wanted him to stone her, what did Jesus do? He said, all right, whichever one of you has never sinned, you go ahead and get us started. Who was the person standing there who could have then still thrown a stone? Jesus. But he didn't. He told her, go and sin no more, right? Don't, don't, Don't keep doing this. But he said, you know, where's where everybody else? Anybody left to condemn you? No, neither do I condemn you. No condemnation. No condemnation. If you, can, if you can get that in your head and your heart and believe it and hold on to it when Satan is the one who's saying, all oh, but remember what you did, remember what you've done, remember who you really are. Remind him what the scripture says. no condemnation for me. I deserve it, but Christ took it. So I don't have to carry that anymore. So that's what Jesus did with Peter. And then right after that, so that's a sweet restoration, right? That he's been reaffirmed and and whatnot. But then there's a, a bitter pill that comes right after this restoration for Peter, when Jesus tells Peter that he is going to suffer, his death is going to be terrible. And uh, he tells him, you know, when, when you were young, you, you dressed how you wanted, you went where you wanted, you did what you wanted, but there's coming a time when others are going to dress you and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And John tells us, in case we miss kind of the, the imagery here, he says, this, he, he's telling him this to show him, to show us Uh, or to show by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. In other words, he's telling Peter, there's going to come a day where you're going to be carried off, taken where you don't want to go, and you're you're going to die um, in a painful way. We know from church tradition that Peter was crucified, uh, probably upside down, uh, in about uh, the mid-60s or so, AD, so about 30, 35 years after Jesus died, Peter suffers crucifixion um, in Rome, and this is what Jesus was telling him was going to happen. You're going to stretch out your hands. You're going to be dressed by others and carried where you don't want to go. But it's fascinating, I think, and interesting and worth pondering, the fact that Jesus, John doesn't just say, he said this to show by what kind of death Peter was going to die. He says by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Have you ever thought about death as something that could glorify God? I mean, because on one level, we're just, like the Bible says death is our enemy. Right? How can death do something good like glorify God when death is bad? Right? When death is an, it's an enemy. So, how, does, how is Peter going to glorify God in his death? Well, he's going to do that by following Jesus all the way to the end, right? So right after Jesus tells him, look, this is what's going to happen to you, then at the end of verse 19, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That's all you need to worry about, Peter. I'm telling you what's coming, but all you need to worry about is you follow me. Right? You follow me into the end, and if you follow Jesus to the end then even with your last breath, you will be glorifying God. Now, Peter, we love for all kinds of reasons, right? Uh, We love Peter because he's out there and says what a lot of people are thinking, but most of us don't want to say, right? Um, Peter's not scared to say it. Um, we love Peter because he's relatable. We feel like, hey man, if Jesus can love somebody like Peter, who's always sticking his foot in his mouth and doing the wrong thing, then like he can love me. right? And Peter responds in this moment like a lot of us respond also. So Jesus just told Peter that he's going to die and that he's not going to like the way it's going to happen. And then Peter looks back behind him and he sees John. Right, and the way John tells us, since John's telling the story, that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. That's how John refers to himself often in this gospel, in in the third person. And so he says that Peter says, um, "Lord, what about this man? Right, what's going to happen to him? You just you just told me my end is going to be pretty terrible. What about John? Right, is is he going to have to suffer too?" Why is Peter asked that question? Well, it's not hard to figure out because a lot of us have the same kind of motivations and questions too. We want to know why our road has to be harder than somebody else's. Right? Like when something bad happens, one of the things we're often prone to do is look around and go, how come nobody else is going through this? How come everybody else is just going through life like everything seems great, and here we are over here suffering or having this crisis or this hardship, and why? And so Peter wants to know, okay, well, if it's got to be bad for me, well, what about John? He, he's got to have something hard too, right? Well, again, what well, we know from Scripture, John didn't have an easy road of it, right? He got exiled to the island of Patmos. He tells us that in the book of Revelation. Um, but again uh, church tradition tells us that John lived a long life lived to be an old man lived uh, to right about 100 AD so another 30 plus years after Peter died he lived to be an old old man Uh, and may have been the only apostle who didn't die as a martyr so John gets in some sense an easier road and you might say, well, living to be, you know, that old doesn't sound all that easy. Well, maybe, maybe not, but he doesn't have to be crucified like Peter, right? So what Peter is reminded by Jesus here and Jesus through Peter is reminding us as well is that it doesn't matter what anybody else has to endure or is called to go through Our job is simply to follow Jesus, right? So he says um, in verse 21 or 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It's almost like saying, you know, that Peter, that's none of your business. That doesn't affect you. What John is going to have to go through doesn't matter to you, in one sense, because that's not your road. That's not your path. You worry about what you're called to do, and what you're called to do is to follow me wherever I lead you. John's going to have to do the same thing, but his road is going to be different than yours. And so what if it is? So what if I decide that John doesn't even have to die, that he just gets to live until I come back? What difference does that make to you? Does that mean you can complain to me about your lot? No. So, we're all called, right, to follow Jesus. If you're a Christian, your job number one is you're following Christ. You're following Jesus. But all of us who are following Jesus are not all going to walk the same path. And that's okay your path might be shorter or longer than somebody else's. might be harder or easier than somebody else's. You might even find somebody who you both wish, man, if we could just switch, like I like yours better, and Joe, you know, I like yours better. But it doesn't work that way. We are not in charge, despite you know, what people often say, we are not in charge of charting the path our life is going to take. We can make plans and we can, but like the Lord is the one who directs our steps. He's the one who's in charge. And so it doesn't do any good to compare our life to somebody else's. Usually that just ends up making the hardship you're already going through that much harder. So, what Jesus reminds Peter and through Peter reminds us is our job is just to follow Jesus wherever we go, and whatever might happen. that That's our job. Don't worry about how somebody else is having to follow Jesus, or what somebody else is or isn't having to go through. Jesus loves you. Jesus is leading you. Just keep your eyes on Him. That's what Jesus is telling Peter. Now, why why bring all this up? This one, he tells us quite plainly that he's uh, trying to squash a rumor. He's trying to correct a misunderstanding. He tells us in verse 23, the saying spread abroad among the brothers. This is a nice way of saying, right? That This rumor got around. The saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. And you can see where they got that, right? They hear Jesus said, what is it to you if I decide that he gets to remain until I come? And they jump to the conclusion, John's not going to die. John gets to live until Jesus comes back. Now, is that what Jesus said? No. And so he says, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So he says, Jesus didn't tell me I'm not not going to die. Right, some of you think that's what he said. That's not what he said. Why is it important for John to squash that rumor? If there were some people who did believe, right, based on their misunderstanding, that John was going to live until Jesus came back, and that Jesus had promised that, what happens when John dies and Jesus is not back? Crisis of faith, Perhaps. Can we really trust Jesus? He didn't do what he said. Well, he is doing what he said. You just misunderstood what he said. Right? But if you're convinced that's what Jesus said and then it doesn't happen, then you've got a crisis on your hands. Now, the most healthy way to respond to that is to go, you know, maybe I misunderstood something. Maybe I interpreted that wrong. Maybe I drew the wrong conclusion. But sometimes what we jump to is this didn't happen like I thought it was going to, so Scripture must be wrong. Jesus was wrong. No, that's not what's going on. And John's trying to prevent that. And now, we don't have to worry about that specific problem because John died a long time ago, right? We're not, we're not you know, wringing our hands over that. But we need to be aware of the same kind of concerns because they can happen to us too uh, the the easiest example to take is your understanding of the end times <clears throat> right so uh, you may have you know been told like this is how the end times are going to unfold and here's the Here's the chart, and here's the 30 you know, events that are going to happen, and it's all gonna happen just like this. And you know, these first few, they're happening right now in the Middle East, and whatever, and, and man, you got it down, right? What happens if some of that doesn't unfold like you were told? Is the Bible wrong? No, probably just whoever that was you were that was teaching you that got it wrong if you've been told, this is what the Bible says, period, then when it doesn't unfold like that, if it doesn't unfold like that, you may have a crisis on your hands. So what we have to remember is that there is a difference between what the Bible says and our interpretation of the Bible, right? Now that doesn't mean that we don't actually know anything because all of it's just interpretation. That's not at all what I'm saying. There are things that we all know the Bible clearly says. And the church, Christians all over the world have affirmed those things for thousands of years. They're rock solid. But the order and sequence of events of the end times are not among the things that the church has a unified understanding of. There's a lot of different opinions because it's very difficult. And it hasn't happened yet. And so we're not all sure how it's going to unfold. Some people feel very sure. and They might be right. But there's a good chance you're going to be wrong. We don't know. But you won't have a crisis with, if you know that there's a difference between how you've tried your best to interpret those things and what the scripture actually says. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you just want to be on your guard about that kind of thing. All right, last thing, real quick. John wraps this up by saying um, about himself, verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. In other words, this whole book is John testifying to what he has seen and heard and experienced and learned. This is him telling us the truth about Jesus, about his death, about his resurrection, Right, about his coming return, about uh, salvation by faith in him, right? All those things John is bearing witness so that we might know the truth about Jesus. And that witness is true, but John wants us to know it's also limited. Right? Verse 25, is one of the most fascinating statements uh, anywhere in the Bible where John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John is telling us look, I, I just recorded a slice of what happened. Just a slice. I, I didn't get anywhere close to writing down everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did, everywhere Jesus went. I don't even know if we could contain all the books that we'd have to write to talk about every single thing that Jesus did. But that means the things he did write, he chose on purpose. These are the things that were most important for us to know. These are the things that John was persuaded would be most persuasive to us about the truth about Jesus. Remember, he told us back in chapter 20, at the end of chapter 20, why he wrote the book. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, there's so much more that John could have said, but he has told us everything we need to know. When it comes down to it, what John wants us to take away from this book, what John wants us to know for sure, is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one promised in the Old Testament to come and save his people from their sins. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And John wants us to believe, to put our trust in Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Lord, so that we might have true and lasting, everlasting life in him. Let's pray.